0: Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters podcast from GP Strategies, your talent transformation partner. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts and explore best practices and innovative insights to help your organization improve performance. Compliance training. To many of these words conjure up awkward lectures followed by signing an agreement, or perhaps suffering through gated, computer-based, or web-based training and what one might call pop-up purgatory. I know, I've been there before. But what if compliance training could be approached in a different way? What if it could actually help drive performance? What if it could touch hearts and minds in authentic ways? What if it could flex and adapt to meet your associates where they are in their current knowledge and expertise dear listeners these are the exact types of questions the gp learning experience team is already thinking about and has a lot to say about in fact today we're going to switch things up a bit you see i recently had a chance to be a silent fly on the wall and listen in as andrew jolly global head of strategy for gp learning experience interviews Dr. Liz Hornby, GP Learning Experiences Principal Learning Consultant and compliance training expert on the topic of compliance trainings past, present, and future. Without exaggeration, they're both luminaries in the field of compliance training and learning experience, but with very unique areas of focus. Dr. Liz Hornsby is one of the world's foremost experts in compliance-related consulting and training design. Formerly trained as a lawyer, she holds a PhD from the University of London, where her dissertation focused on whistleblowing within the UK financial services industry. Over the past 30 years, she has advised some of the largest and most admired financial services organizations in the domain of compliance training and related efforts. As you'll hear, Andrew's perspective is multifaceted as well. Over the past three decades, Andrew has had an active role in visual design, design direction and learner experience, often applying his talents to leveling up compliance training initiatives. Now, I guarantee you are going to pick up some valuable insights on compliance trainings past and where GP learning experience is taking it in the future. Let's listen in. So I suppose just for the sake of positioning
1: what we're talking about, it would be great to know what we mean by compliance. How do we start that one off, Liz?
2: Yeah, well, I think that's a great place to start, actually, because it's a deceptively simple question. And we use the word compliance and the phrase compliance training all the time, but we don't necessarily all use it in the same way or mean the same thing. I suspect that the answer to that question probably depends on who you ask, interestingly. So it would be good to come up with a sort of agreed meaning of the phrase for the purposes of this conversation. I think if you were to ask someone in financial services, the answer would be relatively clear. They have, after all, compliance departments and compliance officers. So their compliance training means mandatory training, usually that's delivered or definitely delivered to meet a legal or regulatory obligation. So it would cover things like financial crime, conflicts of interest, information security, etc. But it probably goes wider than that because compliance is definitely growing. And I think that's probably one of the things That's interesting from this conversation. So it's now including things like diversity and equality, ESG, whistleblowing. These are increasingly becoming included in the remit of compliance departments. And that's driven, I think, by the fact that financial services regulators have also shown an interest in these topics. So as soon as the regulators show an interest, then it becomes something that the compliance departments are interested in and that triggers the compliance training. And I think that makes labelling and terminology even trickier. It's not just financial services, though, that's heavily regulated. We've also got sectors like healthcare, pharmaceuticals, who obviously have their own specific compliance and legal obligations. And even in unregulated sectors or relatively unregulated sectors, Compliance training is also often used as the phrase to refer to mandatory training that meets regulatory and legal obligations. So bribing corruption, data protection, cybersecurity, they're all increasingly referred to, I think, by a wide range of organizations as compliance training. So if I were pushed to come up with a definition, which it isn't easy to do for today's purposes, I'd probably say that compliance training is training that an organization classes as mandatory and that's delivered either in response to a regulatory or legal obligation or as part of a mandatory onboarding program for employees. Not a perfect definition, but it's probably the best I can do for today's purposes. Yeah. Do you agree with no. that?
1: I do. I mean, I wonder... If there are any sort of areas, you said that compliance is sort of growing and certainly Mm -hmm. diversity inclusion and um, ESG are examples of where Mm -hmm. I've seen new areas sort of coming into our compliance team. But Mm -hmm. um, is there anything you'd say was not? It has to be in your mind mandatory and linked to a, a regulatory need. Yeah. outside of this area yeah
2: it's something that we've spoken about before isn't it that as compliance gets wider and wider and wider it's more and more difficult to think of things that don't fall within mm. the definition because in theory you know compliance and esg more or less covers everything within organizational training but i would probably say sales training Something like that, you know, or soft skills training uh, wouldn't be included uh, in compliance training. And I think if it's not mandatory, we'd have to look at that definition quite closely. So I think that mandatory aspect is really important.
1: I was going to suggest sort of areas of process and operations, but of Mm -hmm. course, things like operational risk and how Mm -hmm. organisations deal with that are all totally part of this. Yeah, area so yeah and you talk about compliance departments you mentioned compliance departments yeah. is there a distinction that compliance training always or often comes out of a or is developed by or for a compliance department as opposed to an a broader D function or are they in fact the same
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I think at the start of my career in compliance training, I would only ever speak to compliance people, (laughs) compliance (laughs) officers, people in compliance departments. And compliance training was very much seen as separate and the L&D team probably wouldn't be particularly involved or would just have sort of oversight. Uh, I think that has definitely changed. So I'm talking to L&D teams more and more, but compliance or legal or whatever they call themselves these days, ESG, GRC, regulatory risk, you know, there's lots and lots of titles because the terminology is so difficult. But they do tend to be involved. So there does tend to be an in-house subject matter expert who's very invested in the content. Tends to be part of that conversation. And perhaps that's something we can talk about when we look at the challenges, perhaps a bit later, as to why that causes challenges and, and clashes sometimes between LD and compliance. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. My only reflection on that is that over the many years of working with the full range of clients and customers in different sectors that finance and Legally strongly legally governed sectors tend to have compliance teams. And if you're working in automotive, perhaps, or or luxury goods, the compliance team will maybe be a subset of a broader learning function. True. But that's yep. not entirely true. But it certainly feels different from a developer point of view. Yeah. In the sort of, you know, working for a big finance type client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So we thought we'd talk about this past, present, and future, so that when we get to the future, we can talk about where we think it's going and what great compliance learning is like. And I think the past thing was really so that we can understand how we got to where we are now, Mm -hmm. and what the kind of story is, the narrative and the pressures. So as you've been with this world the longest, Mm -hmm. And I joined it a fair while ago. But um, do you want to sort of tell us where compliance has come from? What's its history? What's its story so far?
2: Yeah, sort of brief history, potted history of compliance training, I guess. I think it's good to look at the history because I think it helps us to understand why compliance training has developed how it has and why it's different. So there are some differences which I think we'll tease out during this conversation. And I think it will help us to understand why it's different. In the early days, as I say, when compliance was first dreamt up by the regulators, compliance training was exclusively classroom-based because it was before the time of of digital learning in any way. It was delivered by compliance personnel, so people were grabbed from compliance departments and told that they had to give uh, compliance training, and that was regardless of their ability or indeed their inclination to do so and with some notable exceptions i think lawyers and compliance personnel aren't necessarily the best teachers or speakers so the sessions tended to be really really content heavy probably as a factor of that very long very boring um, death by powerpoint or even death by acetate as we're going back a long time now <laughs> which was, was probably how it was described and the reputation that it got The ability to record and demonstrate attendance was really important right from the start. So there was lots and lots of admin involved. So sign-in sheets, booking rooms, sending invitations, often repeated invitations. So there was a very large admin load for the compliance team as well. Very quickly, I would say that the in-house compliance personnel won the argument that they didn't have the time, they didn't have the skills, they didn't want to deliver compliance training. And so a whole new profession was born of the compliance trainer, and they took on the job of doing that compliance classroom training for them. I was one of those uh, in at the start. The training was still obviously classroom-based, but uh, at least it was delivered, I hope, by people who were enthusiastic about the delivery as well as the content. But it was expensive, the admin was still there, and all of the logistical challenges uh, remained. So a few years into that, that's when CBT, computer-based training, was starting out in its infancy. Uh, and the compliance industry grabbed it, grabbed yeah. it with both hands, with enthusiasm. Uh, I remember those early days really well. It was really exciting to use these new tools. And classroom trainers like me raced to convert their PowerPoint decks and slides into CBT uh, courses. Yeah. Uh, it was much cheaper. Learners could take courses when it suited them. You could train, you know, thousands of people at once rather than having to book sessions with, you know, 20 people in the room each time. Completion was automatically recorded and reported yeah. and you could include assessments. So it felt like we had the, you know, the sort of holy grail at that, at that point.
1: Yeah, It certainly was the sort of the kind of what they back in those days called the killer app. Of yep. the digital learning. I mean, I do remember a kind of weird hybrid where we did live training and then did a multiple choice question online. Yep. But that probably moved very quickly forward when somebody realized, well, actually we can create some training online as well. Yeah. Yep. I think there was another thing that meant it worked, which was the consistency of experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that trainers were great at doing it live and in a room but some trainers might have been better than others if you created one course and put it out from the center of your organization to everybody you knew they were all getting the same thing they were all getting the thing that had been signed off by the the legal team and you could spend a lot of time getting that right down to the final sort of full stops and wording and know that everybody was experiencing precisely that yeah that learning
2: yeah, very true. And one of the challenging things actually about doing compliance training face-to-face is the questions you get. <laughs> so, you know, it, it limited the people that could deliver it because you could be asked some really, really difficult questions and you oh, had I to make sure that. you answered them correctly.
1: The questions from the learners back yeah, to the... exactly. Oh, okay, right. Exactly.
2: Yes. So, yes. you know, you could be put on the spot quite easily. And so... I think a lot of compliance trainers wanted to have someone from the organization's compliance team in the room to make sure that they answered those questions correctly. So that sort of speaks to your your consistency um, point of view as well. But the one thing that you don't have with a digital course is you don't get to ask those questions and you don't get to meet the compliance officer face-to-face. So negatives as well, I guess.
1: Yeah. So that was really early days of e-learning, digital learning. What happened then?
2: Well, I think that it just grew and grew and grew, to be honest. I think when the novelty of CBT wore off and the ease of delivery, the increasingly complex regulatory and legal environment and the compliance training curriculum just grew uh, exponentially and it's continued to do so. So, you know, one of the big challenges that we face now Is the length of those courses, the number of courses, and obviously the learner fatigue that flows from that. And I think this is where we've generated the bad reputation and the challenges that come with digitalizing compliance training.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the most significant things about compliance, actually, while we're still on the kind of just sort of sorting out where it is and what we're Mm. talking about, it's absolutely push learning. It is absolutely push learning in every way. And it's not really evolved much further from that. Whereas a lot of the other work I've been doing has changed hugely Mm. over the years, whether it's become you know more blended or a mixture of push and pull or more resource-based or more flexible and all the other things but compliance because of what it is because of where it's come from and the very very hard and indeed serious business requirements that are laid down has remained in its sort of own form still and that's as a result of all of these sort of challenges that that have evolved over the years so when we're thinking about those challenges where do we start what has made it like it is now
2: yeah well I think there's a few unfortunately (laughs) so so let's work through the list and I think it's really helpful to look at the origins of these challenges because as you say I think that's why compliance training has been slow to change and I think understanding why that is is really important if we're going to move the dial and test how far we can move the dial for compliance training. So I think probably first and foremost, I would probably say that one of the biggest challenges, which is true today, particularly probably true today, is the fact that compliance training can be weaponized by organizations. And and what I mean by, by weaponized is that It can be used, and probably understandably so, as a defensive shield by organisations and senior managers. And I think that's particularly evident in highly regulated industries like financial services, where there is an increasing focus on corporate liability and particularly personal accountability uh, at a senior management level. It's probably true for all industries, in fact, that there is a general trend in regulation and legislation globally for organizations and their senior management to have to put in and be able to demonstrate reasonable procedures within their organizations, and those include training. So a failure to deliver training and a failure to be able to demonstrate that you've delivered it which is equally important, uh, can lead to the organisation and or its senior management being penalised. So they've got skin in the game. You know, If they cannot demonstrate that they have trained their staff on absolutely everything and show chapter and verse in that course, then they could personally be liable. So it, it's no wonder that senior management want to throw everything including the kitchen sink into the training you know that's the way it is we're increasingly unfortunately at the moment moving in that direction in terms of regulation and legislation
1: yeah so there's a very very different kind of requirement for why Mm -hmm. why lights don't exist and the The checkbook is firmly in the hands of the organisation and what they need from it, not necessarily balanced in favour of the learner and what they need. That's my take on it. And the other thing is, and I know we've talked about this, that comes out of that is that the SMEs, the subject matter experts, Mm -hmm. are, it feels to me, very, very much the drivers Mm -hmm. of the design and the experience because of all of that, is that right?
2: Yeah, I mean, they're a really key part of that. So, you know, the SMEs are the ones who are really responsible for protecting the organisation and the senior management. And, and they're often... Part of that senior management team themselves. So the compliance officer is a very senior person within, particularly a financial services institution. And it's, you know, understandable that they want to protect themselves. And it's those those compliance professionals, I guess, the ones I mentioned earlier, who used to write and deliver the training within the firm. And they still have that big say on content. So the sort of death by PowerPoint, I guess, in a digital world is now death by pop-up. I'm sure we've all seen reams of content produced from an SME, an internal SME, to populate a single page of digital learning. And the only way you can do that is putting 12 pop-ups, each with scroll bars on the page. So we haven't gone away, I think, from that problem of the very heavy technical content and the course is just getting longer and longer.
1: Yeah, I do remember working, you know, years back for some compliance training for pharmaceutical industry, which we don't often mention actually, interestingly, yeah. and the SMEs giving me, you know, pages of content. Mm-hmm. And as a young learning designers saying great great you know i'll work with that and they said no 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 no, i don't think you understand that is the content
2: that's it yeah you can't change anything can't change the words yeah Yeah, yeah. Yeah. but put it on one page (laughs)
1: yes yes Yes, because the instructions that go with it are we want it to be we want it to be really wow and exciting and engaging and everything else and different to all other Yeah. yeah Yeah, yeah
2: yeah yeah but you can't change the words which is quite a challenge yeah hmm.
1: and I suppose another uh really important factor here is the fact that it has to be tested at the end the core take out from the organization is that all of these people have done this training and have scored something out of something which is deemed acceptable mm-hmm. um and therefore it's very heavily testing oriented, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the testing element of compliance training is the other sort of really big part of it that makes it different, perhaps. Mm. And the reason that you're testing people is perhaps different. So it's all part of this challenge of demonstrating that the requirements have been met. And as I said earlier, CBT made it really easy to assess learners and produce reports, all sorts of reports. And this was seized upon by regulators' internal audit, who obviously are a really important audience when we're talking about compliance training, and senior managers as well. So it depends what you mean, actually, by testing. I mean, for some courses, they want to actually demonstrate that someone's completed the course, but that's generally not enough for compliance. They also historically tend to have the end-of-course assessment that we all know and love attached as standard. So... That's the sort of reputation, I guess, that compliance courses have, you know, your standard typically quite long course with an end of course assessment at the end. Uh, In practice, unfortunately, and this has been sort of documented in the media, unfortunately for a few firms, employees began to share their answers. So in order to prevent that uh, or prohibit that, question banks got longer and longer and longer and randomized so that, you know, that made that You know, more difficult, which is one of the reasons that question banks are so long often in compliance courses. Another problem was that what do you do if an employee fails? So, in the compliance world, that's very difficult to handle. No one wants that admin worry, nor do they want to share those figures with regulators or internal audit. So, as a result, actually, a lot of compliance courses are impossible to fail. You're just sort of caught in a continuous loop of doing the question bank and potentially the course as well until you reach that magic 80% pass rate and you're finally released from the course. So compliance question banks have a really, really bad reputation, I think. Uh, And it's actually really difficult to ask questions, particularly multiple choice questions on compliance topics. Because if it's a topic where you're going to be testing someone and their pass or failure depends on that question, it's got to be very, very black or white. And you can't really explore the gray areas in those end of course assessments. So when doing a compliance test, the correct answer is usually the longest one. Or it's the one that says escalate your concern. They're usually quite easy to guess. If you test people on facts, you know, which is my real bugbear, if you ask people what does this Acronyms stand for. It's a very limited value testing that, and they're unlikely to retain that information for very long anyway. And even if you try and ask scenario-based questions, knowing what you should do is actually very different from being willing to do it in the real world. And that's particularly important or true if you're looking at something like escalation, reporting, and whistleblowing. So... There are a lot of issues, I think, with that traditional end-of-course assessment approach.
1: Yeah, well, we'll come to that in a minute, I think, about when we get into sort of design and and the future. I know that there was one other thing, actually, that I skipped over when we were chatting about this prior to this um, podcast, but it was that a lot of... Compliance courses have been developed on the back of knee-jerk reactions to yep. a situation um, and therefore are not necessarily being thought through properly. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think that's really true. And maybe that's one of the things that also makes compliance training slightly different from other training, where there's often quite a long lead time and a lot of thought goes into the process. So, organizations with their compliance training often have to, as you say, react to the external environment, whether that's new legislation, regulations, or often it's a new fine by a regulator that organizations want to cover off in their training, or it could be an internal incident that's happened uh, within an organization that they also uh, want to cover off. So, there's always this pressure to add content to courses not much pressure to take content out. So that's yeah. another reason I think why courses get longer and longer. And there's often a very short timeframe and a very, if it's an external regulation, a hard and fast delivery date to work to that isn't flexible and i think it's worth mentioning compliance budgets here as well that we haven't really mentioned so far mandatory training particularly mandatory training that has to be delivered you know every year to all staff doesn't tend to often attract the really big budgets so, you know, if you've got a limited training budget, there's not that much appetite for bringing out a new course necessarily each time. Yeah. So that's another reason why things are tacked on to the end of courses each year rather than starting from scratch and doing it as a new course.
1: Well, I suppose in the context of everything we've talked about, success looks like getting everyone through yeah. past. And if what you've described is true, which which it is, then people have to do it. So why spend any more money on it than is necessary in order to get everyone through it and out the side and all the data back and job done?
2: Yep. I mean, absolutely. I've heard a number of people in compliance call it punishment training. You know, (laughs) you have to do it. You've got no choice. It's a requirement to be still fit and proper to do your job. So it doesn't really matter that it's a good experience because you have to do it. So That's a different way of looking at training than perhaps you're used to, Andrew.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. So all of that takes us mm. to a place where if we don't do what we'd try and do, Liz, and what we're mm. coming into next, mm. the kind of direction is a sort of training that you have to do every year. It really is repetitive, unenjoyable experience, unrewarding and everything else, which is a terrible place for us to be. But (laughs) fortunately, Mm. we are going through to how we can make it better and then the future part of this. So all is not lost.
2: Yeah, we've painted out a pretty bleak picture, haven't we? (laughs) We have. But all is not lost and there is definitely hope. And things are changing. I think at GP, we're specialists in compliance training, and we definitely are driving real change. And I think there are some really interesting trends in this area. So let's try and be a bit more positive.
1: (laughs) Very good. So where should we start?
2: I think I would start, actually, I've mentioned that a lot of compliance training and the direction it's taken has actually been driven by regulation. And actually, I think some of the trends or one of the biggest trends that we're seeing in certainly financial services training has actually got a regulatory driver. And that is the move towards conduct-based training rather than compliance training. I talked about terminology earlier. There's actually a lot of uh, compliance departments who are sort of rebadging themselves as conduct departments so that's interesting and I think that opens some doors for us and I think it enables us as an industry to probably learn from other training in other parts of organizations as to what works well so we're seeing a strong trend towards this more conduct centric approach and that's in the sense of sort of values judgment decision making and I think a recognition that That's actually what is at the heart of compliance. And I think there's a recognition that traditional compliance training, and and we've talked about this when we've talked about knee jerk training, was a way of fixing the problems of the past and breaches of the past. But if you're actually going to change the problems that haven't happened yet, (laughs) the problems in the future, then the only way of doing that is changing conduct. So there is actually this big focus on conduct. I think the other thing it does is that it enables us to be more holistic about compliance training. We were talking earlier about where compliance ends and other training starts. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is that we don't need to actually other compliance and keep it separate or probably get too hung up on that definition. So, for example... Sales process, I mean, I mentioned earlier that that sales training is one of the things outside compliance, so I'm actually going to have to eat my own words here. But the sales process should also be anchored to some extent in compliance as should recruitment processes, um, other operational processes, if there is a compliance element. And I think that there has been a tendency in the past to separate things and compliance to be a separate form of training, when really it should be part of all training, if there's a compliance element to it, rather than kept separate.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I've seen a change in the way people have, Started the conversation about how we design compliance training or conduct based training now. For instance, looking at the moment in time when somebody makes the wrong decision and what yep. drives that, you know, that people are fundamentally good always until they do something and then exploring yep. what it is that's driving them to do that and then yep. designing around that, which is really interesting. Not just saying, this is what you need to do. Do you understand this is what you need to do? Mm-hmm. But thinking about the attitudes, the the motivation. So, you know, we often use BJ Fog when we're thinking about design or broadly, which is about triggers, ability and motivation. You know, ability is what compliance training used to focus on a lot of, you know, just tell people how to deal with this situation yeah. and then they know and then it's done. But the triggers is an interesting one. Will they know when they see themselves in that position and this is the time to deploy uh, that learning? Will they be aware of it? And then the motivation one is absolutely critical. Do they, in their heart, understand why it's so important to their organization that they make these decisions and and behave in this way? Is their heart really, really in it? So it's really interesting. And of course, scenarios which is something our team at um, GP and and formerly at Leo famous for in the industry are absolutely perfect in this sort of learning, aren't they?
2: Absolutely. I think conduct really enables us to make the most of scenarios. I think scenarios have always been used in compliance training to some extent, but they tended to be very factual, as you said, rather than to have that sort of um, depth um, to them. So we're really working on scenarios that bring in that emotional response, as you say, the element of jeopardy, difficult choices, gray areas. And it's even better if you can use the scenario, I think, at the start of the learning. So if the first thing that you see when you start your compliance course is a really interesting scenario that really catches the imagination of the learner, they're hooked by the drama from the start which drives them through the learning rather than the traditional you know open the course and says today we're going to learn about this and here's you know 10 pages of of text and compliance itself may not be dramatic but non-compliance certainly is so there is quite a lot of drama in compliance so you can bring that drama to it I think some Organizations are worried about showing their staff in a bad light, so they don't want to have scenarios that show perhaps members of staff doing bad things. But the best scenarios don't focus on members of staff doing bad things. They focus on members of staff making difficult decisions. And scenarios enable you to highlight that and to show the consequences of those decisions, good and bad. So I think they work really, really well in compliance.
1: Yeah. And they offer a sort of safe space to make
2: absolutely decisions
1: yeah. and see the yeah. result, as you say, consequences. I love the idea of using a scenario at the front of the learning mm-hmm. instead of what used to be, you know, do all the learning and then you get rewarded with the scenario, which is absolutely yeah. not the right way. I really like how scenarios can give you different perspectives. Yeah. You know, I remember designing something some way back where we used this kind of angel devil figures so that you're in a situation and you can see the two possible advisors and it's never always sort of completely clear which decision to make, but... Using certain devices, you can show the results of different routes through a decision and what will happen and so
2: on. Yeah, there's lots of things that we can do with scenarios. I mean, we've done some where you can choose to be... You know, different individuals. So if you're a line manager, you can play the role of the line manager. So what would a good line manager do here and see the impact of the way you interact with the team, which is interesting. Another one I particularly like is a sort of turning back the clock type scenario where you actually start with the phone going and the regulator phoning your boss and saying, you know, we're coming in to investigate. Yeah. And then you actually roll back and see how or what decisions led to that point, which is an interesting way of doing it as well. And certainly sort of, you know, catches people's imagination right from the start. Yeah. yeah.
1: And are there problems creating realism? Because these scenarios work best when they do really reflect the real situation in which people will find themselves
2: yeah I think with the scenarios it's really important to work with the in-house subject matter experts so we can go a long way in writing those scenarios but we really need to talk to them as to what language people would use how things would actually happen in practice because you have to make it as recognizable as possible for the individuals Filming it in the offices of the organization is a great way of doing that as well. And if you're brave enough as an organization, even having your own members of staff sort of involved in the scenario yeah. is another way of doing that. So it's important to make them really real so that yeah. they resonate with people, I think.
1: Yeah, nice. Well, how to design a great scenario is probably the topic of the next podcast sure. that we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> my brain sort of spinning with all of that so with things like scenarios we can create a really engaging learning experience Mm -hmm. but we've still got to do assessments yep so where are we heading with that
2: yeah well we've already talked about the sort of problems with the sort of traditional end of course assessment but the reason why organizations want one and we're increasingly trying to remove end of course assessments where we can. And I think the way we're doing that is challenging their value, particularly in more nuanced conduct-based courses and trying to really keep their use to a minimum. Yeah. So we're increasingly using in-line or in-course knowledge checks and scenarios with questions and you know they can be scored if you want to score them or unscored and the advantage of them being unscored is that you can actually make the questions more nuanced you can explore gray areas People can click on things like, I'm not sure, or I don't have enough information yet, things like that. And that's something that you just can't do, as I've said before, with the scored multiple choice black and white type of questioning. So we are rethinking assessments. There'll always be a place for them, but where we can, we are removing them from the end of the course.
1: Yeah. I remember doing a design for what we would call certainty-based scoring, Mm. where you ask a question and then you somehow have a mechanism for asking the person how confident they are in the answer so uh-huh. you say what's capital of france and they go paris i'm going to effectively bet 10 points on that what's capital of australia I'm not quite sure i'm only going to bet 5 points on that uh-huh. and we thought it was a really clever and lovely tool Uh, And we have done it in many contexts and it's been very powerful. But of course, in a compliance context, you don't want to know, or rather our customers don't want to know where there's low confidence. They just Mm. want to know that people have done it.
2: I think that's one of the problems that we touched on earlier, where they don't want people to fail the course, which is why, you know, you just keep caught in this loop. It's the same with confidence. And in fact, confidence is probably worse. I mean, imagine if you had a whole load of people who got the wrong answer and said they felt really confident about it. I mean, that's the sort of information that your internal audit team and indeed regulators would love to get their hands on. And, you know, that becomes a big problem for an organization because they have to do something and it's probably expensive to put that right. So I think, you know, the data that's generated from courses is, again, probably used differently in a compliance context um, for that reason
1: yeah it's a really interesting area really interesting area nowadays we have another kind of really interesting area is what I would call adaptive training Mm -hmm. I mean we can explain what we mean by that but it Mm -hmm. did start out at some point as being a sort of do an assessment and that will enable us to know what you know and what you don't know so you don't have to do the full hour You can just do a top up based on the stuff that you didn't pass questions off. So that was something that came along to try and use assessment to give people a slightly better experience Mm -hmm. one way or another. And then we have kind of various versions of adaptive training as well, don't we?
2: Yes, so I think that's right. First of all, it was used in compliance, as you say, that sort of pre test type style approach Mm -hmm. was introduced to tackle learner fatigue. And the fact that a number of these courses, you know, are rolled out every year often actually the same course (laughs) to people, because for the reasons I mentioned earlier, people don't, you know, always launch new courses each year. So it meant that if people could demonstrate their ability or knowledge at the start of the course, they could either fast track straight out of the course and not have to do the course at all, or they'd only get a limited amount of key information. Um, So it would be a much shorter seat time for them. And that we're seeing increasingly actually happening within courses, I think there is a negative with it which we we work with our clients on, which is that if you are going to only ask a few questions at the start of a course, those questions have to be the right questions. They have to be really good questions to actually satisfy senior managers and regulators, which we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, um, that you have adequately trained the person and tested their knowledge. So I think that is, you know, making sure that that's a robust process is perhaps one of the challenges with that sort of pre-test approach but it is being used increasingly particularly as I say for those courses that are rolled out every year yeah
1: and then there's sort of what I would call true adaptive yeah where the learning experience is completely different for every single learner and yep. the questions are embedded throughout and according To what your response is to those questions the course itself will reconfigure itself so that you just keep going if you're absolutely on top of the topic you may get through it in 20 minutes if not the course is going to take 50 minutes but again by the time you get to the end we know that you've covered all of the topics to the right level yeah
2: yeah absolutely and adaptive Training can be quite simple, but it can become highly complex. And I think there's a lot of benefits for adaptive training in the compliance area. So one of the things it can do is it can tailor the route through, as you say, the learner journey to the learner. So if you have a series of chatbot style type questions at the start of the course, it can select the route best suited to that individual learner. So it can cover language preference, department role, seniority, et cetera. And that's a real advantage in compliance courses where we've got this learner fatigue and where it's important that the content is really recognizable by the learner. So it means that scenarios can be tailored to a particular audience. It also means that those people who don't need a lot of the detail don't need to see that yeah so that's really helpful i think in compliance and that's something we've done a lot of and we've got a lot of experience in that area and i think it's something that is really greeted well by learners that is taken into account what their background Um, is and where they work. So that's something that we've done a lot of. And you can also build in, as you mentioned, adaptive functionality into assessments. Mm. So if you have knowledge checks uh, within the course itself, if people are getting those questions wrong, you can be pointed and directed at more detailed information. Uh, If you're getting them right, then you can move more quickly through the course. So your assessment strategy can also be made adaptive, which I think is really helpful as well
1: yeah which is great so yes there is this kind of swing back to the learners themselves which is Mm. really really Mm. good and finally there's the move to what you might call micro learning little and often Mm. perhaps whether that's part of the compliance learning itself or as a sort of additional learning in the sort of whole picture of the compliance training and blended of course as well
2: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. This is probably one of the other big growing areas I think we're seeing. And we're seeing a move away from the sort of annual or biannual compliance courses. And we've mentioned already in the conversation why they cause problems with training so those long form courses may be suitable for new joiners to an organization but there's probably better options for existing employees both in terms of you know refresher training or that sort of knee-jerk training that needs to be done quickly and in response to an external environment, but doesn't necessarily need them to do the whole course again with that yeah. bit added on. So we're doing a lot of micro-learning, um, short-form courses, sort of five or ten minutes. They're a great way of reminding employees of important compliance content or tackling the forgetting curve over time which obviously it's important to keep compliance you know foremost in people's minds or informing them of sort of new regulations or risks it's highly responsive and quick and cheap which is probably or cheaper at least so that's important for compliance teams for the reasons that we've said they can form a, a blended program in combination with the longer form Uh, courses that we've looked at. They can be targeted at specific audiences, which is very attractive to compliance. And they can also be placed, sort of, we talked about processes, they can actually be placed sort of, you know, in the flow of work easily as well. So, If someone has to get a gift or entertainment approved, they can do a five-minute micro-learn on that process and what the risks are before completing the form, which is probably a much better place to place that learning than doing it every year in the same month, year in, year out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, The other sort of version of blended learning that I remember seeing recently that I really, really liked was creating packages for the managers as well Mm -hmm. so that they understand the conversations they need to have with their people their teams um, that are slightly different perhaps creating small activities and topics for team meetings structured little conversations Mm -hmm. extra resources and assets and things like that that just bring the topic to life It is many different ways that all multiply out the power of the whole experience.
2: Yeah. And I think that's something we've done quite a lot of, actually, helping produce those resources for meetings. And I think, actually, that's a really powerful way of doing compliance training is actually to lift it off the page, off the digital course and take it into a team meeting. Because there's nothing more powerful than your manager saying to the team, did you do the training? Yeah. I was one of the first to do it. I thought it was great. Some of the areas didn't quite resonate with us, did they? But let's think about the first scenario. How could that happen here? And that really drives it home as something that is important to your line manager. So you tend to do things that are important to your line manager and and makes it more interesting for people. And, you know, we've done a lot of work with extending those scenarios and doing sort of notes for the line manager to ask questions and getting people to share experiences and them sharing their own experiences so that those sort of compliance conversations and difficult decisions are made part of team meetings and discussions. And it gives the team that compliance lexicon I guess, and a way of talking about these things in a sort of non scary atmosphere. So I think that's a really important point.
1: Yeah. So the future's looking bright. My take on all of this is these things we've been talking about in the last few minutes that are the kind of direction we're going in are all about really thinking about the learners as well as the organization, making yep. sure that the learning experience is as good as it can possibly be and as effective as it can possibly be um, and balancing that with what the organisation needs in every way but it feels like we're heading really in a much more powerful direction which is very exciting.
2: Yeah I think that the pendulum is definitely swinging in the direction of the learner and I think as I say I think that's been driven as well by regulators and this focus on the more psychological aspects of compliance away from necessarily you know the technical knowledge part of compliance so i think that's definitely the direction of travel over the next few years
1: i've really enjoyed this conversation liz thank you so much
0: all right did i live up to my promise or what liz and andrew had a lot to say about compliance training i personally picked up a lot about where we've been in the past where the pain points are right now, and also where the trends are going and what GP learning experience is doing about it. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. We have a great summer of content coming your way. Lots of great thought leaders. So stick around, stay tuned, please subscribe to Performance Matters sponsored by GP Strategies. I'm your host, Michael Teal. Please make it a great week. The Performance Matters Podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts or listen on our website at gpstrategies.com.